This is Truth Talks. Welcome to the Truth Talks podcast. I'm your host, Buddy Boone. Thank you all for tuning in. If you have not subscribed to the podcast, please do so. You can do that with Apple. You can do that with Google. You can also do that with uh, Spotify. Yeah. And Matt is here. This is actually the number seven of the Passions of the Heart series that Matt will be uh, teaching this evening. So please sit back and relax. Well, you won't be able to relax, hopefully, after and this And you won't one. enjoy the ride. And, and you won't enjoy this ride. So uh, here we go. All right, guys. Good to be with you tonight. Let me open us in a word of prayer, and we'll jump right in. Father God, we thank you for this day. We thank you for the blessing of our time together. We just pray, Father, that you would continue your work of sanctifying grace in our hearts, that we would continue to grow more and more into the image of Christ. Lord, we thank you for uh, how you are continuing uh, your work through this class and how this has been a, uh, just a blessing for us. And we just pray that you would help us to continue to have broken hearts that are humbled before you, that are dependent on you, and that in many ways, Lord, are, are further delighting in you because of who you are, what you've done, and as we understand the gospel rightly, what you will do in the future with our glorification. Thank you that we are not yet what we will be, and praise the Lord, we are not what we once were but you are making us uh, more like our great Savior, and for that we are excited. So help us now as we seek to pursue godliness and kill wickedness, as we wrestle with this reality of our, of our idolatrous hearts once more, that you will give us even more grace. Thank you for that great promise where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. And may that be a great motivator in our lives as we consider the power of the gospel yet again uh, this night. For your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So we start out as we always do with the uh, major meditation points from chapter 6. It says 6 and 7, but we never really got to 7, so we're going to do that tonight. So uh, page 4 from last week's notes, just as a review, um, says the hungering heart is driven by the idolatrous pursuit for what? Anybody remember? The hungering heart. Remember, we've already looked at the hurting heart. There, there's two types of hearts. There's more than this, but this, the book kind of breaks it down into these two areas. There's the, there's the um, hurting heart that really deals with uh, all kinds of uh, different ways in which your heart has been hurt. Most of the time, it's self-deceived hurt, but it could be even hurt from molestation or something where your heart has been hurt, or it could be driven by the hurt of others seeing your parents fight, or, or he's given us multiple examples of this, where your heart is hurt and you're seeking solace uh, in the hurting heart, and oftentimes you seek that solace through sexual sin. And uh, I don't know if you guys listened to the podcast that Morgan sent you from Todd Friel, Wretched Radio. If you don't listen to Wretched Radio, you should on multiple levels. But uh, Dr. Street was on uh, uh, Todd Friel's podcast on Wretched uh, talking about the book, and I was like, look, Velcroft's cutting edge, even before Todd Friel um, um, had, had Dr. Street on, we were already conversing with him about it, so uh, what a blessing, but he did an excellent job, about an hour interview, talking about all of these things, I encourage you to go back and listen, and he talked about Frederick, though he didn't use Frederick's name, they, 
the Todd Friel jumped ahead of him and gave him another name for the guy, and so it was kind of confusing. I'm like, you're talking about Frederick in the book, which isn't his real name, but we've gotten to know Frederick really well. Yeah, it, yes, you knew it was Frederick, did you? Yes, so uh, it's good. But Frederick had a hurting heart because of his parents. His upbringing was really rough and hard because his parents were fighting. It was interesting when Dr. Street talked about it again. He was talking about how vicious the fights were and that there, were, there was even at times bloodshed and knives. And I mean, it was not a healthy home for this young man to be raised in. And how he would run under his bed, pull out his comic books for solace to get away from the fighting and how that's established within him, this retreat kind of mindset for solace to try to get away from the pain and then even turning to the comic books and how that just then set the stage for one day where he would turn away from the comic books and turn to playboys, turn to pornography, and that just started this whole retreat of self-satisfying uh, a pleasure that he brought to himself to where even when he and his wife would argue in marriage, then he would retreat to that every time as a way to find solace in the midst of that pain. And that happens a lot, a lot more than you would even probably want to know. And so that's the hurting heart, but here we're talking about the hungering heart. Hurting heart seeks solace, the hungering heart seeks what? Satisfaction. Satisfaction satisfaction. And this is the heart that's out for pleasure, right? It's not looking for help with pain. It's looking for personal pleasure on every level. Number two, having personal satisfaction as, a, as life's pers- ultimate pursuit is vanity and will only yield at best, who remembers this, out of Jeremiah chapter, what is it, chapter two, chapter four, it will only yield two words. What do we look at? It will only yield broken, remember, cisterns, remember? A life's pursuit where you are, are after pleasure. Ecclesiastes, I think, 32, 34, 35 times uses the word vanity, uh, worthlessness, soap bubbles, fruitless. And the point is anything you find in that pursuit will end up being a broken cistern. What does that mean? It doesn't hold anything. Whatever it promises to satisfy will not last. The water will go in the broken cistern and it'll go right out. So whatever that pleasure is you think you're going to get from whatever that thing is you are pursuing, it will not ultimately satisfy. It may provide uh, seconds of uh, pleasure, but it will not last, just like the water in the broken cistern. Number three, the hungering heart in search of satisfaction is often motivated by the idea of self-reward. Remember that? Where I've worked really hard, especially in ministry, right? This comes up with pastors and elders all the time, where it's like you sacrifice, you work really hard, and it's like, ah, now I deserve a break, right? Where you, like, I, I, I've earned this. And oftentimes that break is, well, let me, take a little, let me take a little look here. Let me think about this. Let me relax and enjoy this. And it's, so it's in that self-reward that you are susceptible to all kinds of sexual sin. And pastors in particular have fallen prey to this. And that's why he did a really good job in the book. And he talked about, and I have seen this even in my own life, when you are tired, when you are physically tired because you've worked hard in ministry, 
where you've, you've given it all, you are so susceptible to all kinds of sin. It could be anger, it could be sexual, it could be frustration. So that physical, and that's why we looked at the complex unity of man being both immaterial and material, being both spiritual, being both spirit and body, and we talked about that and how important that is and how they feed off one another and how when you're tired, it affects your spiritual life and vice versa. And so this, rea- this reality of being tired and running hard in ministry and being faithful and producing as we're called to, and then all of a sudden you're like, okay, I deserve a reward. I need to sit back. And David, right, is the prime example of that. It was, it was when he had achieved that peace for the nation that he does what? He stays home when everybody else is going out to war. Opens him wide up, what? Bathsheba on the roof, Right? And it's like, listen, there are no self-rewards in ministry and in life. And you're like, well, I'm glad I'm not a pastor. No, you're, you are a shepherd of your home. If you're a father, if you're a wife, you have the responsibility of shepherding your home. And how often, if we're honest, you come home from a hard, day, a hard, a hard day's work and you're like, I just want to sit down and take a break. You're, you're right into this pursuit of pleasure hungering heart. I just, I just want to, I just want to, uh, I want to sit down. I want to have a cup of coffee. I want to have a beer, whatever it is that you're longing for, for some self-reward because you've worked hard. Listen, man, I hate to break the news to you, but at 530 or whenever it is that you get home, your day has really just begun if you have little children. Or if you have teenagers, it's maybe just begun to fall apart, whatever, right? That's reality, right? Exactly. And uh, so, so, yeah. <laughs> but I mean, that's it. But how often are we plagued with that? And that sets us up all, all kinds. So that motivation of self-reward, deadly. Number four, the hungering heart is in search of satisfaction is often motivated by, this is huge, flattery and the praise of men. That's your fill in the blank. How many men who are longing for that pleasure, hungering for flattery, wanting people to tell them how good they are. And um, being from West Virginia, I don't have this issue here, but maybe some of you do, where wanting people to tell you how good you look. I've embraced the fact that I'm not a good-looking man. I have yellow teeth. I don't know how many of the kids in our church have asked me on Sundays. And people have told me, you should get that fixed. No, it keeps me humble as a pastor. And so many of our little kids will come up to me and say, Pastor, why are your teeth yellow? And I always say, go back and tell your mom and dad, it's because I'm from West Virginia. You know, it's just, I've embraced it, right? But some men are prone to this. They want women, they want people to tell, man, you look good. You've been working out lately. Oh, you look like you're trimming down. All of that, right, is a heart motivation that is setting you up for all kinds of sin, especially sexual sin. And so you have to be careful, especially as you get older, right? Because then you're fighting that and you're not wanting to lose that youthfulness or you're not wanting to lose that look. And so all kinds, that's the whole midlife crisis where there is no such thing. That's just, uh, that's just secular idea of covering selfishness and sin. That's all that is. But we call it, remember, what we, what we, what we are so de- deceived by in our sinful hearts, we are masters at calling sin everything but sin. I mean, it's just, it's, that's how deceived we are. So now we come up with all these phrases or, or all these isms and midlife crises. Give me a break. It's a crisis of selfishness. And so uh, number five, the hungering heart in search of satisfaction is often motivated by the desire for power and control over others. And this is, uh, 
This is a scary one because this leads oftentimes to rape, right? So this is what will lead somebody to molest a child or rape a child. Oftentimes it's that hungering desire just for power and control. And uh, there's all kinds of other things that come out of that, but that's one that you can resonate with just like that. And so when you sense in your life a hungering heart, it's a scary thing. It's a scary thing because you, you just never know. And never forget, these motivations, these hidden motivations of the heart are often interwoven, right? So um, I'll be honest with you that in my understanding as a biblical counselor, it is rare, as I've done this many times with people, it is rare to find a person with just one motivation of the heart. Almost always it's interwoven Right, And oftentimes, because how it works, and I probably have told you this, and if I have, just remind yourself that repetition is the mother of learning, right? But it's, it's oftentimes we sin, and then we pile on more sin, and we just keep piling on more sin. And then eventually, we're convicted at some point along the line, but we're convicted at the sin we see at the surface. And so you may genuinely repent of that, but then you have all this underlining sin that you have yet to deal with. And so you just keep piling on another sin, another sin, and that's where a good biblical counselor helps you get down to the root problems and deal with all of that. And it's all intertwined. That's why I sent you that picture of the roots, and they were all grown together, and that's our, that's our hearts, that's our lives, and why that's so important. And so you'll often be marked with a, with a hurting heart because somebody, listen, it, it's not just it is sometimes where it's back in your past as a child, I'm counseling somebody right now where this is a big deal, where in their childhood they were raised this way and these things happen and that predisposes them to think this way, which is all sinful, and we've, we're dealing with that. But oftentimes it's even just here, like in present relationships where somebody offends you, somebody, somebody doesn't do what you want them to do, somebody... <laughs> Uh, the pastor doesn't come by your house when he said he would, or, or you know, the pastor didn't say uh, hi to you, or didn't uh, give you the, you know, the accolade that you wanted, and then you get upset. Well, you've got a hurting heart now, which is going to make you susceptible to all kinds of things. And so it's not just past uh, relationships that you were raised, it's even present and why it's important to forgive one another and deal with those things immediately and show grace so that you're not intertwining more sin upon sin. So, so important. Um, number six, the hungering heart is in search of satisfaction is most often motivated by the lust for comfort. This would be without question the most prolific one where most men are in search of comfort, pleasure, it's just that desire, I just want it. It's, it's the, this is the uh, explicit root of covetousness. I just want that because it makes me feel good. And uh, so, so sad, but so real. Number seven, this is a really good segue to our lesson tonight. And one of the most important points, I think, in the whole study by way of these meditation points. It is not enough to know about saving grace, that is, in fighting sexual sin. But you must also faithfully live in light of sanctifying grace while killing sin. Sanctifying grace. And I will tell you, I am confident in our time in this class and hearing some of your interactions that some of you struggle at this level. 
And I'll say it often on a Sunday morning at different times, depending on where we are, that one of the issues with us as believers is the cross of Christ is behind us as a past act, as something done 2,000 years ago that we once believed in. That is one of the worst, that is one of the worst, saddest, detrimental perspectives you could ever have. And I'll tell you, that permeates Christians' lives. When the cross of Christ should never be behind you. The cross of Christ should always be before you. It should always shed a massive shadow over your life to where you're never out of the shadow of the cross. You are never out from underneath its grace and its blessing. You're never forgetting what God did, what God is doing, and what he will do. But most of the time, the cross and the gospel, which this came up in chapter 8, the gospel is just this past work. It's what I said, I think, on Sunday, right? We have fire insurance, which there is no such thing in the Bible, but that's what way we see salvation, right? Been there, done that, got it. Now why, why is my life this way? And it's like you're totally missing it, right? The gospel is everything. And so it's so vital that you understand saving grace, regenerating grace given to you at the, at, at the moment of salvation. But then, by God's grace, he continues to pour sanctifying grace into your heart. And so that really is the seedbed for hope, which drives us to fight sexual sin. It's so important. Somebody, in light of this, somebody look up 2 Peter 1. 2 Peter 1, read verses 3, and I'll cut you off somewhere along the line. 2 Peter 1, start at verse 3. Who's got that? Who will do that? Go ahead, Tom. Thank you. Just start at verse 3. I'll cut you off somewhere. Yep. Okay, stop right there. Who's Peter writing to? It's not a trick question. Believers or unbelievers? Believers, okay. He's writing to believers who are being persecuted severely under duress because of false teachers. And so it's a difficult letter. So he's writing to believers who are dealing with sin, dealing with the sin of others, dealing with personal sin, dealing with difficulty. And what is it that ultimately motivates them to stay faithful in the midst of frustration, fear, problems? What is Peter talking about there in a synopsis form? What is, what is everything Tom read is all defined in one word. What? The gospel. What he just said, he's talking about the gospel. What, what does he mean that the Lord has given to us everything we need in life and godliness? He's talking about in the work of the gospel, we have all that we need. Paul is, or excuse me, Peter is going back to the gospel and he's starting his letter off and saying, listen, everything I'm going to tell you, everything you need to do, everything you should be doing is based upon what God has done. You see Peter casting a gospel shadow across this whole letter. And he's saying, this is the reason why you add to your faith virtue, why you add to your faith godliness, why you add to your faith purity. All these things we're talking about, you do this. And he even says in the text, for this very reason, right? He's making it very clear. Based upon the gospel, what God has done, now you go and do. 
And this is the side where we always struggle because we're going and doing something, but it's not based upon the gospel. It's based upon some guilt trip. It's based upon uh, some legalistic mindset. It's based upon fear. It's based upon frustration. It's based upon really all the wrong heart motivations when it should be driven by and motivated by the, the, the sweet delight and love for the Lord based upon his work in the gospel. I'm telling you, men, that changes everything in fighting sin when you fight from that place. Because when you fight from that place, you fight from a place of victory, not defeat. And this is why, this is why we struggle in, in killing sin. This is why we struggle in finding delight in killing sin. Right? And we're burdened. Like, why do we have to go through this? And it's like you're missing the perspective. Missing the perspective big time. And so you see this throughout the epistles. And you see right there at the beginning of, of the letter. We have been given this. And he lays it out. We've been given this so that we might be conformed or be renewed into the image of the Creator, which is the ultimate purpose. And so, uh, yeah, there's a, that's a whole sermon right there. But see that reality of sanctifying grace being driven by saving grace, which ultimately then in your life when you pursue purity will drive persevering grace where you will not quit, where you will stay faithful to the end. All right, back now to our specific lesson for tonight. Um, I wanted to go back and deal with chapter 7 because we didn't deal with that last week. Uh, we, we lost time there and this is too, um, too important. Chapter 7 is too pivotal. So... Uh, in the notes starts there. We'll we'll deal with the the actual chapter seven here in a minute. The biblical stress test. Um, but in the notes it says, explain what is meant by specific preconditions and why identifying specific preconditions is key to killing sin. What did he mean by that reality of specific preconditions in the heart? Did anybody look that up? Know what that is? What is meant there when he talks about that? What are the specific preconditions of the heart? What does that term mean? And why is that so important as you evaluate your heart even more? Any thoughts? Mm-hmm. 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 Yes. So a heart attack just doesn't happen. Think about it, right? Yeah. You're giving me guilt. We like our fried chicken too, and our fried catfish, and our fried. <laughs> but yes. Oh, let me uh, in lots of lard. But that's another discussion for another day. Yeah, Crisco. Yep. But uh, yeah, so a heart attack just doesn't happen, right? There's something in the life, in the veins, in the arteries that predisposes the heart to weakness, to ultimately failure, right? Just doesn't happen. And so it is with sin. Sin just doesn't happen, right? There's something going on in the heart and in the life that is a precondition that, think about it this way, right? A tree just doesn't grow right? There has to be something done to the soil. There has to be seed dropped in it. There has to be uh, the topsoil raked away, and there has to be all kinds of stuff. So it is with sin, and that's what he's talking about. 
these habitual, automatic, unconscious patterns of thoughts and responses that result in sinful attitudes and behaviors. And it is often these preconditions that help feed or foster or instigate sin. And why this is so important, men, and I cannot keep, I cannot stop to keep repeating this reality. When you're wanting to follow Colossians 3, 5, which is what this whole class is about, killing sin, you have to kill it at the root level. You have to kill it at the motivation level. You have to kill it at the heart level. And so when you're dealing with fixating on a woman, whether mentally or physically or pornography or whatever it is in the sexual sin world, yes, you can get rid of your computer. Yes, you can put covenant eyes on your computer. You can do all these things, which are just wisdom, but that's not going to kill it. It's not going to kill it. You can sign me up to be one of your accountability partners. Let me tell you, as helpful as that will be, that will not deal with your sin. You haven't even started with that. That is not even in the realm of killing sin. So if you think that putting something on your computer is, I'm fighting sin, no, you haven't even started to fight sin when you do that. You're just being discerning. That's all that. You're just being a wise man because everybody should have that, right? So you've just waken up a little bit. But you haven't started killing sin until you start rooting around in that heart and start dealing with what's motivating it. And uh, these preconditions are often what you find there. And so it's so important. Uh, Failing to identify these specific preconditions brings what? And this, you will resonate with this. What, What happens if you fail to identify these preconditions? What will be the results? Yes, so you will continue to do what? Repeat it. Habitually, which only brings what then? Layered sin upon layered sin, guilt, frustration, depression, disappointment. Anybody ever experienced that in fighting sexual sin, right? Where it's just, that's the results. And then remember how it works, right? It's, it, man, sin is, uh, habitual sin is like a path. And I've created many paths in the woods in my day. And the more you walk down that path, right, the more impressed it gets. So in your brain, this is just how the brain works, in the gray matter of your brain, every time you do an act, it's literally like walking a path down your brain, right? So the more you do that, that's why repetition is the mother of learning, because you keep going down this path. That's why cramming for an exam never works. It might work for the moment, but you won't retain that information. But if you keep going back to it day after day in little spurts, you will remember that because you've created in the gray matter in your brain this crevice, and that's where a lot of that comes from, even when you see a brain. So it is with habitual sin in the negative. Every time you go there and you look at that, uh, that picture or you satisfy yourself or whatever it is, every time you do that, you've just created another path which means it's getting more impressed into your habits, which means it's going to be harder for you to break out of that, right? And so when you're in this fighting sin, but you're not dealing with the problem, it not only creates all these emotions and attitudes of of struggle and guilt and frustration and how can I, I'm never going to get out of this and all that comes with it. It also tightens the noose around your neck and your arms where you you just keep going back to it. Because of these habits. And so it's so important to identify and kill these sins at the root level. Um, Because if you don't, you're just going to keep failing in this area. And it's so, so important. Um, On the notes it says, um, explain 
uh, why salvation is monergistic. And we won't look up these verses for the sake of time. But what does that mean? What does it mean that salvation is monergistic? Mono means what? One. One. Energistic or synergistic means what? Together. Work. Right? This whole idea, it's one work. It's one person that works. That's what monergistic means. It's a one work. It's one way. Salvation is God's work. It's not God and man. Right? That's what monergism means. Monergistic means that salvation is the work of God alone. Synergistic means what? To work together. Right? It's a working together between God and man. And so sanctification is, is as well a work of God, but it's a work of God that he does in man by doing what? Through man. So it's the work that God does but he does it through your work. I don't fully know how to explain that, right? That's God's sovereignty, but that's what the Scripture teaches. So God is going to work out your salvation. He's going to make you holy, but he's not going to do it apart from you, right? So this is where he commands us to obey, And don't ever forget this. God has sovereignly designed the goal. He has sovereignly designed the plan. He has sovereignly designed the purpose. And he has sovereignly designed the means. He sovereignly designed the whole thing. So some people say, well, why why doesn't he just do this? Because this is his means. This is the way he designed it. He designed it that we would, he would save us on his own. He would give us faith. He would open up our eyes. He would provide repentance and all these things once we're, our hearts are convicted. And then he would command us to live in holiness and to pursue godliness for the rest of our days on earth. And it was through our obedience in that that he will progressively make us like Christ. That's his method. That's the way it works. And so when you're not following the method, meaning obeying, then what hope is there? Well, one, you may not be a believer. That's the first thought. Or two, you're surely not in line with what God wants. That's his method. It's like being in a marriage and trying to go, you know what, God, I know you want me to be married to one wife for life, but that just doesn't seem like it's all that fun. So I'm going to do it my own way. What do you think is going to happen? This is not going to work. It's going to be a disaster. And for some reason, we think growing in godliness, we choose our own way. I'll go to church on Sunday, and then I'll live the rest of the week my own way. No, it's not going to work. Not going to work at all. And that could be revelations of all kinds of issues. You've you got a bunch of, uh, of prideful, arrogant, disobedient, belligerent uh, children that he is growing to become faithful, gracious, loving, sacrificial warriors. And you want to see the greatest image of that? Look at Israel. They were the most obstinate, disobedient, rebellious. I mean, look at David. Just Just take him, right? And what does God do? He transforms his people to be... Loving, gracious, kind, not perfect, but you see his work of grace in them. So it is with us. That's what he does, and this is his means. And don't lose sight of this, man. Why? And, and some of you are, I know, fixated on this at times, and I understand, right, because it's a struggle. Let me tell you why. In the end, what does that do for us 
humbles us, where we wake up to the reality. But what does that do for God? Glorifies Him. Just keeps, the longer we're in the battle and struggling along the way, and by step by step, gaining victory, who gets the glory? He does. So that when we get to heaven, which if you're a true believer, you will get there because He's promised to get you there. When you get there, you will never say, God, didn't I do good? Exactly. And that's the whole point. So that we spend all eternity going, phew, I'm so glad for your sovereign grace. As I'm only here because you persevered me to the end. And that's the, that's the point. And he just gets the glory. So why not jump on God's bandwagon now and just give him all the glory now and admit it now and live in light of that now because, one, that's the, that's the source of pure joy and delight. And do that now. Why wait till the end? Right? And that's the point. That's the point. And grow in that now. So, yeah, good, good. Um, and Colossians, a really, a really helpful verse in this is Colossians 1, 28 and 29. And there you see this interplay of God's sovereignty and man's uh, responsibility. Somebody read that passage there. And see this, this interplay here with Paul as he gives, really, with, which is one of the greatest philosophy and ministry verses in all the Scripture. Who has that? Go ahead, James. So, don't miss it. Now, Paul is, in context, is talking about ministry. He's, it's in an extended passage where he's talking about the work of an apostle and all that he's doing and sharing the gospel and, and preaching the gospel. And so when he says, him we proclaim, him we warn, him we admonish everyone, seeking to bring everyone in maturity of Christ, like that is the mission, that is the greatest mission statement of every church, or at least it should be. That's their whole sole purpose right there. It's crystal clear. And yet, so that's what Paul does, Right? That's his obedience. That's us fighting sanctification. Like we fight sin in every way, everywhere, all the time, right? That's faithful believer. Now verse 29, and I do this to the point of exhaustion. That's literally what that word toil means. I do this to the point of physical exhaustion. How? With the strength that he provides. He just lays it out. That's, that's how you do this, man. That's what he's saying with all the energy that God works in me. So it's his work that he's working in Paul through Paul, and that's, that's, our, that's our synergistic sanctification. So it's all a gift of God's grace through the means of our faithful toil in trusting in him. And so it's so, so important, so important. Um, Is that where we get all things translated? No, that's Hebrews 12, but that... That concept is helpful, yeah, where Jesus Christ is the beginning and the end, right, where he starts it and he will finish it, absolutely. And, um, but um, on, on page uh, 178, it says here, um, or on pages 176 to 177, list out at least three critical biblical truths explained in these pages that are paramount in the fight of godliness. Did you come up with a- any of those there? There were a number of ways you could look at that, but I didn't want you to miss those. I came up with four. 
I asked you to come up with three. This is what he talks about in that passage there. He doesn't necessarily use these words, but if you're reading it rightfully, this is what he says. Number one, look for impure preconditions. You've got to hunt those down. So in the fight against sexual sin, you've got to look, number one. You've got to look for impure preconditions of the heart, hidden motives, right? Excuse me. Number two, you have to be looking for them while you're constantly learning about his abounding grace in your life. So you don't go looking for these preconditions without your growing understanding of God's sanctifying grace. You've got to be learning about his abounding grace. And this is where he was quoting out of Romans 6, where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. And so he's talking about reminding that fact. So you fight all sin through the lens of the cross. That's what I was saying, the shadow of the cross, where you're looking for these preconditions. You know your heart is wicked. You know you've got these hidden motives that you're selfish in, in, in literally in everything that you do, uh, as I am. And so you're looking for those things to purge those from your life. And as you're looking for them, you're looking for them through the lens of, God, your grace is sufficient. Thank you for even giving me the desire to do this. Thank you for giving me the strength to do this. Your grace will abound in this and for, forgive me through this. And number three, you do that while you leave behind all of those sinful passions that you find. You leave those behind. And then number four, you live for God's full pleasure, not your own. And so that was helpful um, to glean those just helpful steps as you're walking through those. On page, um, on page 182, before at the end there, dealing, or 178, dealing with the stress test, what were the two things that led you into the stress test on chapter Two, where he said, you got to do these two things if you're going to find benefits from this stress test. What, what was it? You remember? Yes. Yes. You've got to know, identify those motivations. That's the whole point, right? The stress test, they put you on the treadmill, they give the dye to you, they hook all the things. Why? To identify what's going wrong. So you've got to identify those. And what was number two? And this is, the, this is really the, the bigger one. Yes, you have to humble yourself and say, yes, that's me. That's what's leading me. That's what's grabbing me. Admitting the deep grip that these motivations have on you. And honestly, that's where most, most of us fail. We even identify them and then we're like, that's not that bad. I really, I'm really not dealing with that. And that's where we're done. Yep, you're done. And uh, how, many, how many people have fallen at that point? It's all about humility and the killing of pride. So anybody do chapter 7? Anybody go over through that and answer, like wrestle with that uh, going through? Um, any, anybody want to share? Just go ahead, Talon. Did you go through that and deal with some of those? What did you find? You don't have to give us specifics, but was it helpful? Yes. 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 And all of those are what? Yes, sin, right? That needs to be what? Yes, exactly, right? And so you've opened up this Pandora's box 
which we all have in our heart, and you start to realize, wow, I didn't even know that was in there, right? Instead of mapping more sin on it, you purge it out now, and you start to figure out, why am I afraid? Because that's really the next question, the why. Why am I afraid of my future? Why am I, you know, angry at this? And then you come back to the fact of, because I don't, I'm not really trusting in God who sovereignly controls it. Now you're starting to get to the bottom of it. Now you're starting to really kill sin. You see how massive of a difference that is than going, I have a pornography problem. Pastor, help me. And it's like, yeah, you have a greater problem and it's not pornography, right? You see the difference? Huge, massive. That chapter 7 is why I put in the notes, I'm telling you, is the most important chapter in the whole book. And if it isn't in your life, then you're not reading it rightfully or you're not prepared. You're not humbling yourself. You're just not ready. Go back and read it again and get ready. And uh, it is so helpful. Those questions that he gives you, like Talon said, that are so helpful because they, they just guide you. They guide you in, into wherever you need to go. And some of them will be like, yep, I don't have that. And then it's like, ooh. I mean, I did it. And it's like, ooh, uh, yeah, I got that. That's me. I need to deal with that. Right? I'm predisposed on that level big time. And so, yeah, it's helpful. Anybody else? Go ahead, Morgan. <laughs> yes. 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 Yep. Yep. I can't remember either, honestly. But um, uh, what I generally say about that is, um, as you mature as a believer, you will sin less. It's a promise. It's a guarantee, right? As a believer, you will. You're not, then again, that's a heart check to see, am I really a believer? But as you mature as a believer and you're sinning less, it will feel like you sin more. That's what makes the struggle so hard, right? It's not that you're gaining, you're not gaining victory, right? And this is where a good pastor and a good shepherd will help you see this. It's that you're learning the holiness of God and seeing him in his place. He just keeps getting more holy. You keep getting not more sinful in your actions, but more sinful in your sight because you're seeing yourself for who you are. And that disparity between the two gets greater, not shorter, right? That's the immature Christian. That's the, that's the, the uh, sinful Christian where it's like, there's not, that, there's not that big of a difference. That's God. That's me. I'm really not that bad, you know. That's the non-believer or the really immature Christian. But as you're growing, it just keeps getting greater. And God just keeps going higher and you just keep going lower, which brings you more pain, right? Because you don't want that disparity, right? And that's when you turn to Christ and you go, ah, there's the bridge, there's the mediator. There's the one that brings, that closes the gap, right? And that's why the Puritans were one, so introspective and focused when they would, when they would have a prideful thought or when they would have a discussion with a neighbor and they would use a word or a tone. It would just, and then they would write about it and you'd think, wow, this guy just murdered somebody. And then you'd get to the sin and it was like he just had a cross word with his neighbor. And he's pouring out his heart to the Lord and you're just like, whoa. 
was there something wrong with this guy? No, everything's right about it because he understood the holiness of God and the sinfulness of man. And, and that is, again, part of that growth that keeps us and grows us, but that's the nature of it. And that's why um, the older you get, so I always liken it like this. When you become a, a, a believer in the beginning or you're young as a believer, and there's, this isn't necessarily wrong. This is just the nature of it, right? You're just like conquer the world. You know, they're the greatest evangelists. And it's just like everything's good. And then the longer you grow as a believer, you start going like this. Listen, I can tell you every time I go to the pastor's conference, I can always tell you the new pastors. Never fails. They're bounding around in the bookstore and they, hey man, what's up? What's up? You can always tell the seasoned guys. They walk around like this. And they're always in the book section that's always dealing with counseling, encouragement. I mean, that's the way it is. Because why? Because they realize, man, I don't deserve this. I'm so sinful. We got so many problems at our church. Lord, help us. I mean, that's just, that's the reality. It's called humility, right? Same thing as a father, right? I've always said the greatest parents of the world in the world are the new ones. They got it all. They know it all, right? They got it all, man. Don't ever try to tell a newborn father, you know, a new father how to parent. Oh, I got this. I got this. But check back in in about six years. They'd be like, can you help us, pastor? <laughs> You're ready now, right? So it is. That's that reality, Morgan. Yeah, which is so important. So important. Yeah. 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 And the problem in, in that, or the problem with Luther at that point in his life, he was sensitive to his sin. That's why he hated God. He even said, he said, I, I can't stand this God because there's only judgment and wrath because he knew he deserved that. But he was waiting. Where's the love of God? Where's the grace of God? And that's where Christ comes in and Christ becomes everything to us. And that's where the joy of the Lord, the delight, and the, and the desire to pursue holiness then comes from. Go ahead, James. Yes. Yeah, she did. Yes. Yeah. 
trust the Lord. That's it. That's it. That's why the whole, and that, that is, that's helpful because that's the issue with fighting sexual sin. It all comes full circle back to faith in the Lord. And I have, this, I have this later on in my notes, but I'll fast forward now for sake of time and tell you this. I had written in my notes as I was working through them, Hebrews uh, 12, or Hebrews 11, what is it? Hebrews 11, 6, without faith it's impossible to please God. And Romans 14, what is it, 14, uh, what verse is it, 1423, is that it? Where um, without uh, anything done uh, not by faith is a sin. And that reality, I was meditating on this and as I was working through the notes and saying the ultimate struggle with us at the end of the day, going back to even what Talon was saying a minute ago, is our lack of faith in the Lord, right? That's where this really comes down to. For so many of us, we really don't believe God. And I, this came up in the section that's coming up in a minute where, where I sent you on a bunch of verses about the character of the Word and how the Word gives hope. That's the next section. That's how it starts off because the book was talking about we have hope in fighting sexual sin because we have the eternal Word. And I just I went off on that tangent in the notes with you guys to drive you to understand how much hope we have in the Word. But at the end of the day, and I think if you searched your heart, you would see, you would see this clearer than you probably want to. When you sin, it all comes down because you really don't trust the word. You really don't trust what God said he would do. You don't, or else you wouldn't do it, right? That's what it comes down to. And uh, it just hit me hard, and it's just like, yeah, that's exactly where it's at. Most of the time, we trust in ourselves. That's what you're saying, right? And so the people that abandon faith, that's what they ultimately do. Yeah, I'm not going to keep trusting in the Lord. I'm going to do this myself. And so, so much of it is tied to that. And... Uh, Yes. 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 It's good. Yes. Please. That's it. You nailed it. Yep. That's, that's at the heart of the whole book, and that's at the heart of our whole heart problem is us, right? Um, one of the books that, I've, that I read early on in, in, in continuance with this book was an, an old counseling book. It's, I think the title of it is The Enemy Within. And it's all about, the, and it, the book is hard-hitting in the first couple chapters like this one, and it just drives many of the same principles that your greatest enemy is you, right? That's it, and because that's the issue. We worship self. We are, we are the greatest idol that we worship, and you're right, and that's what it comes down to. And um, that's Now, take what you learned in that and what you saw in that. Now think about the call of the gospel, the true gospel, the true call right? Not the easy believe, you know, just give Jesus a try. Not that, but the true gospel, which is what? The death of self. That's the call of the true gospel. Deny yourself, 
take up your cross and follow me. All three of those all point to the death of self, turning the pyramid back around, right, to where it's God at the top. And so, right, so deny yourself, say, yep, I'm not going that way. Kill yourself by taking up your cross, that's that crucifixion, the crucified life, and turn away from yourself, and now you follow the Lord. That's the gospel. But then, as it says in Luke 9, right, that's the call that we're to do. I love it in Luke 9, it says the same phrase, deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me, what, daily. That's the call of sanctification. Like, it doesn't stop, and that's what we need to do, and that's the constant battle. That's why I preach that every Sunday. I don't, I don't know if there's a Sunday, maybe you can tell me, where I don't preach where that doesn't come up because that's the issue of our lives where we have to constantly be replacing ourselves with Christ, just getting rid of ourselves because that's the biggest issue. And it's a struggle, I admit it, but that's, that's the battlefield, man. That's the battlefield. It's not the computer and it's not the girl on the computer. It's, it's you, Right? And that's every sin. That's just not sexual sin. That's all sin, right? It all comes back to that. Thank you, Tim. Number two, what's, what is heart hermeneutics? What is that? What does that mean? We can go through this a little, little bit quicker. What, what is heart hermeneutics? What is hermeneutics anyway? What is that funny term? It's the science and art of interpretation. That's what hermeneutics is. Hermeneutics just is the way you study the Bible, the way you read the Bible, or it could be the way you read anything. But in this context, it's, it's the Bible. So heart hermeneutics would be what? The way you study your heart. So this was really practical and really helpful because he gives us some principles or practices or methods by which you can exegete your heart. What is exegete? I use that term a lot from the pulpit, exegesis. That's what we do week after week. Yes, yes, and, and, and I think I have down here Proverbs 25 literally means what? Proverbs 25, somebody read it, Proverbs 20 verse 5, somebody read that, who's got that? Go ahead, Brian. Pulls it out, do you see it there? So a good counselor, a good shepherd, a good friend will have somebody who's hurting, and he will, he will not deal with the surface. He'll try to get to the heart and what? Pull out what's going in there. That's exegesis. So when you're studying your Bible, you want to pull out the meaning. You don't implant the meaning. That's called eisegesis. That's what false teachers do all the time, where they put their own meaning into the text, where they make the text say whatever they want to say. Right? I remember we were listening to a, a, an awful sermon that's created a firestorm across the nation back last two, a year and a half ago at a big, big conference, probably 15,000 people there. It was awful. And we, I was there with the elders, and one of the elders, I, I, the sermon was really bad, and I wasn't going to leave until I sat down with all of them and questioned them on the sermon because it was really, really bad. And I said, man, I want to know your thoughts on this sermon. And one of the elders nailed it. He said, well, pastor... He said, this was my thought. It felt like he had an agenda and went searching for a scripture. And I said, Whew, thank you. You got it, right? And, and that's called eisegesis. When you come to the text with a, with a point, with a topic, with an agenda, and then you look for a verse to kind of be your conduit, 
That's, that happens all the time. That's the, that's the hallmark. That's the foundation. That's the conduit of false teaching. But faithful teaching is when you pull the meaning out of the text. Buddy asked me in one of the podcasts now long ago when I talked about expository preaching, and he said, what is that? What does that mean, that big word? And I said, well, simply it means the meaning of the text is the message of the sermon. So whatever the meaning is, that's your sermon. You don't go away from that. You just take the meaning of that text and now you preach it because that's God's word. That's when God speaks. It's not me speaking. It's not you speaking. So what you're doing in heart hermeneutics is you're getting into your heart and you're pulling out what's going in, what's going on in there. And you want to know what's going on. And it's so, so helpful. And so what were some of the, uh, what were some of the steps that um, he gave us what were some of the questions? What are some of the um, tangible hermeneutical steps? And you can, if you know hermeneutics and what are some of the steps of good hermeneutics, they go together here. But he gave us really some really good questions that you should write down and ask your heart all the time when you're dealing with this. What were some of them? Did you, did you see them? Yes. 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 Man, guys, if you get nothing out of this class or this tonight, if you just walk away with those questions reverberating in your mind where you're constantly thinking about that, you know, where you're constantly using that when you're dealing with sin and you just stop, again, I am convinced if we would just stop and give ourselves 20 seconds, we would, we would alleviate so much sin. But we're so quick to run into it without any thought, Right? We're so naive, so, so seduced by our hearts. And, and again, this, this slows us down. And so you stop when you have that thought or whatever, and you're like, okay, what do I really think about this? What is really at the core of what I'm doing here? What, how do I rationalize my worldview? What is my true motivation behind this? What do I love and hate the most? Whom or what do I genuinely worship? Man, those are excellent ways to start evaluating your heart. How can we make those better, though? So I went wrestle with this. I'm like, I'm never content, right? So it's like, how can we make these better, stronger, clearer? You tell me. Because we can. We can. And I've been doing it through this whole eight weeks with you. <laughs> You'll figure it out here in a second. You can make it better by adding Scripture to each of these. You can make it better because here's the problem. If you don't do that, your heart is too deceptive. Your answers will become your lies, and you'll start to believe them. Who's to know whether or not you're really being honest with what you really think, right? So you need an objective source of truth to counteract and to see. So in my notes, I wrote, what do I really think, and is this supported by Scripture? So is if I'm really thinking this, now I want to look at that and say, is that supported by Scripture? Where's the passages that I can support the way I really think? Because then when I go to Scripture, I realize, ooh, I really am selfish, or I really am seeking my own endeavors, or I really am seeking my own praise and not the Lord. How do I rationalize my worldview? And is that worldview biblical? That's why you men have seen through these notes, there's scriptures everywhere. Why? Because that's how I think. That's what guides me, protects me. That's what hems me in. That's what drives me out. It's just I need scripture for everything that I do because that's what protects me because that's what we're called to live by. 
And so start thinking that way. What is my true motivation? And where is that in the Bible? Right? Imagine how that would just change everything. And you would start thinking biblically. What do, I li- what do I love and hate the most? Here you go. What do I love and hate the most? And is that the same thing that God loves and hates the most? Oh, man, that just like takes all the subjectivity out of it, right? Whom or what do I genuinely worship? Is it God because anything else is an idol which makes me an idolater? Yeah, that's, that's helpful. That's helpful. Yeah, these are these are really really helpful. Um, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yes. So just know this that um, and just think of uh, think of Bible study how you study the Bible. You, you, um, it's all about the questions you ask. The better questions you ask, the better you become at studying the Bible. The problem with us is we don't ask enough questions. Learning to question the text. I question the text till I get in the pulpit. I'm sitting over here on a Sunday morning still asking questions about Mark 3 and about Judas last Sunday. I'm still asking, so why? And the question for me is always why. It's never, what is where the study starts? Because what is on the surface? You got to know what's going on. You got to know what the context is. You got to know what's being said. You got to know what's happening. But you got to move beyond that. Most people stop with the what. And it's just like, okay, yep, this is what he said. Think about a sermon like that. This is what he said. Okay. I can read that. Right? How many sermons have you heard like that? This is what he said. Okay. Where's, where's the rest? Right? So, but you got to know that, right? Because if you don't know what he said and you don't get that right, then you've missed the meaning. So you got to go, what he said, you got to look at what context it's in. So there's a lot of what, but then you got to move to the why. Why is he saying this? Why does he say it this way? Why does he do this? It's when you get to the why that you start getting to the heart issue. And men, especially those of you that are fathers, this is at the core of good parenting. So it's not enough when you're dealing with your children and you say, what did you do to your sister? Well, I, I, I hit my sister. And then you deal with that. No, you don't, don't stop there. Then ask the next question. Why did you hit your sister? Whole world of difference changes when you go there. And then, of course, they're going to try to weasel out and they're going to say, this is how it works, just like your heart. Well, because she took that from me because I was playing with it or whatever it was. She took my phone or whatever. She said this to me, and you can't be content with that because that's on the surface. And then you say, and so why did that make you angry? Well, because she, so why did you respond that? And eventually, if you keep going, guess what? You get to the bottom and you say, because that makes me angry because I want it for myself. Ah, now we're to the bottom of it. Now we're at the core. Now we can deal. It's not about the phone transaction. It's not about the comments. It's because you're angry because whatever, and then you deal with it. So it is in the text. 
when you're dealing with a text of Scripture and you're interpreting it and you're dealing with it and you start to get to the why, why is God doing this? Why did Judas do this? Why was Judas asking for the money? Why was Judas turning Jesus over? It's not enough to know that he turned him over. It's not enough to know that he got 30 pieces of silver. You have to know why. He did that because he was a thief, because he was, he was selfish. He was self-centered and he was angry. He was angry at Jesus for rebuking him in front of everybody else when he comes down on Mary for anointing Jesus, and Jesus rebukes him. But he was angry at that point because he was predisposed to be angry because Jesus wasn't giving him what he wanted. He wanted his own little kingdom in Jesus' kingdom, but Jesus made it really clear, my kingdom is not like you're thinking. I'm going to die, and you're going to die if you're my follower. And Judas is like, no, that's not what I signed up for. I wanted my throne right here. I wanted the Romans under my feet. I wanted my own little place. And Jesus didn't give me what I want. And so now I'm already predisposed to all kinds of anger. And then he tries to steal the pilfer from the coffers of Christ. And he realizes the perfume was so expensive and they wasted it. So he's angry because he was already predisposed to that. And now he turns him over because he's going to get what little bit of money he can, the price of a slave, 30 pieces of silver. And so now, now that whole story has come to life by simply asking that question, why? Imagine your heart now. Why am I looking at this woman? Well, because it makes me feel good. No, that's what you're doing. Why are you doing it? Why does it make you feel good? Because you're discontent with the wife you have. Why are you discontent with the wife you have? Because you think you deserve more. Like you're the specimen of, of you know, m- masculinity, Right? <laughs> It's like, how many of us think that? No, look in the mirror, bub. I mean, it's ridiculous, but that's the deceived heart. You see how that's so helpful? That's heart hermeneutics. That's going to the core and just reveals so much and so, so helpful, so helpful. Um, yeah, those are the interpretive questions on, on the middle section of question series number two. Um, yeah. What are, the, uh, what are the disastrous results of not doing hard hermeneutics? This goes back to what I was saying a minute ago. If you don't do this and get to the core, I wrote down here, pride. So if you're just dealing with the surface sin and you're not getting to the, to the why, you, you build within yourself pride, you build within yourself false hope, you build within yourself discouragement when you eventually cycle back to that sin in short order. Then you eventually build legalism because now you built within your system a whole bunch of rules so that you don't do that surface thing, and now you've become a legalist. And then ultimately all you're doing is fostering worse sin in your life. It's it's sad. These habits keep growing. And this, I wrote this phrase down as I was dealing with this in my own heart. Confession of sin devoid of actually killing the sin only leads to greater corruption of sin. If all you're doing is, is, is just a, a mere confession of sin without getting to the bottom and killing the sin, you're just setting yourself up for greater com- corruption of sin. And that's, that's how it works. And so you must fight this, kill this, purge it. Did anybody do the exercise on the rich young ruler? So I kind of gave you an exercise on how to take these interpretive questions and apply them to s- some other place just as a practice. Did anybody do that with the rich young ruler? This will be fun. I thought it was fun. 
don't flatter me and say that it was fun when it wasn't, no pun intended, but I was looking for a way to give you guys an exercise to actually put this into practice because I think it's so helpful. So in Mark 10, you have the story of the rich young ruler, right? And so when you're reading the story of the rich young ruler, which we all know, what um, really, what's going on here? What is his true motivation? What is his true motivation? Okay, yeah. It's hard when you're dealing with motivation, right? This is what's hard, and motivation is so important, right? It, it is, it's what drives everything, like the, the reason. It's the reason behind what you do. So it's hard to discern motivation. And as somebody who's a biblical counselor, it's, it's hard. It's because it's, it's in the heart. So it's hard for you to really judge what's going on. You can eventually get there because people will eventually tell you, right, whether they know it or not. But looking at this story, it's hard to tell. We're not told specifically what it is that now we can ascertain by process of elimination and I think get to some specific primary things. But uh, it's hard to get to the bare bones of what was really driving him. But I, like you, put the same thing. Maybe it was flattery. Maybe he was wanting the prestige of accolades, right? I did it. I did it. Yep, I, yep, I did. I wrote down the same thing. Yep. What else? What else could it have been? Could have been, well, at the end it says he was sorrowful because he had many possessions and he didn't give all those. What if, what if attaining eternal life is just another possession he wanted to put on God? Yes. Yeah, it could have been driven by just the love of money, the love of possessions, whether it's the love of not wanting to give his up or the love of ultimately driving what he wanted. What else could it have been? I wrote the same, yep, absolutely, could have been. And don't you, did you see all these in the book, right? Aren't all these in the book in chapter 7 stress test, all of those same things? So again, I'm just, it was just an exercise to show you how this applies and how you can look for this. Okay, more specifically, what was the next question? Because my answers were so long, I had to write them on the back. Um, what was his motivation? What, what, uh, what is his worldview? What is this guy's worldview? And there are three very specific, clear statements he makes that tells you his worldview. What is worldview, by the way? What does that mean? Yes, it's the glasses, no pun intended, Craig. It's the glasses you wear, right? It's, it's, the, it's, it's the rubric by which you see life. And everybody has a worldview. And your worldview has to be, must be biblical. Again, that's why I go back to those interpretive questions that I gave you, Scripture, Scripture. If you view your world like this, where everything you do is seen through the lens of Scripture, Calvin used to call it, I love the phrase, so helpful. He used to call it the spectacle of Scripture. Not the spectacle like it's a joke, but the spectacles, glasses, the spectacles of Scripture, where he viewed everything through the lens of Scripture. And I've sought to live my life that way, be it imperfectly, and uh, that's so much what I'm trying to help you guys with. So the rich young ruler's worldview, what? Number one was what? Man is inherently good. Did you pick up on it? Yes. Man is inherently good, right? He one calls the, notice, notice the next one. Jesus is just a teacher, right? So if Jesus is just a teacher, that's, his worldview is, is messed up because he hasn't identified who Jesus is. But then if he calls the teacher good, right, and then he implies through everything he says that he is good, 
you see his worldview is that man is inherently good, which is a disastrous worldview that most of us are plagued with, whether we know it or not. Absolutely. I think he was. I think he was. Yeah. Yeah, good point. Yeah. He doesn't say Lord, he calls him, yeah, it's, it's rabbi. Number three, eternal life can be earned. Did you see that? So you can see his whole worldview. Man is inherently good. Jesus is just a good teacher. And this life that, uh, that he's longing for is something that he can earn. That's his worldview. That's, that's a disastrous worldview. What's his, uh, what's his, what does he, um, what does he love most? Yeah, possessions. And what? Self. Yep. Who does he worship? And stuff, right? What does it mean when it says he's disheartened? Did you look that word up? What does that mean? It's really interesting in the text. Yes. Literally, it means he was appalled when Jesus told him that. He was just like, oh! That's what what he meant. But notice that Jesus looked at him, loved him, compassion on him. But the guy's like, and Jesus says, listen, you got to give it all away. Again, do you see Jesus? Always, always. The gospel will cost you everything. You have to die to yourself. Jesus never changes the gospel. He presents it in ways we never would, right? In large part because he's God and he knows the heart. But he's dealing with this guy who thinks he's good and then eventually gets to the heart of the matter. Okay, notice, give all your possessions away and then the same call of the gospel and come and follow me and you'll have eternal life. Notice he didn't say, give all your possessions away, and you'll have eternal life. No, give all your possessions away, showing that you're not attached to them, that those aren't your God, and then turn and follow me, like everybody else he called to follow him. And the guy's appalled, (gasps) and he walks away sad. Go ahead. Nope. Yes. Yeah, Jesus, Jesus is, not like, is not like we normally think. That's why reading the Gospels is very eye-opening. When you read them and you see Jesus, the Jesus who is, and then you compare that to the Jesus we think, and you walk away and you go, I'm telling you, greatest book you'll ever read. Change your life on every level. Everybody should read it. It's the greatest, I think it's the greatest book John MacArthur ever wrote. I think once he finally dies, whenever that will happen, I think he'll be preaching until he's like his dad in his 90s. But the greatest book he ever wrote, The Gospel According to Jesus, is that same reality just will unpack your heart and show you what Jesus really meant by the gospel. And it, it changed my life. It just changed my whole life direction. It changed everything. Um, yes, uh, that is by far the greatest book I think he ever wrote. I think it'll go down when they eventually do their assessment on, on his life, which I think he'll be the greatest preacher in our lifetime and pastor and impact. And when that comes, I, I watch and see if that book isn't the one that's held up as, I mean, he's written like over 100 books, but it'll be that one because it is, uh, it's, it's the issue. It's the heart of the matter. What is the gospel? 
and it's not what most people think. And uh, just, and I love it. It's what, what did Jesus say? F- follow me. Repent and follow me. Turn away from yourself. So, so helpful. So, so helpful. How can we make, now, so, so how, and just help me with this, because again, I, I don't want to miss the exercise that, that I, I want to, again, I'm trying to be helpful and equip you guys. So how would you, how would you counsel this guy? What would you say to him scripturally? What would you say to your own heart in a situation like, where is the scripture you would go to? This is the hard part. This is what you need. This is the tools. What scripture would you use to confront your uh, wrong worldview? If you had a worldview that said man was good, where would you go in scripture to confront that, to turn that to, to uh, Romans 3? Excellent. Yep. Romans 3. What else? Jeremiah, Jeremiah, Je- Jeremiah 17. Yep, yep. What else? Ecclesiastes 7.20, there's not a righteous man upon the earth that sinneth not and doeth good. You know, I mean, that, that would have just laid out the rich young ruler, right? I mean, that's just literally, there's Solomon. You call me good? Well, Solomon said, there's not a righteous man upon the earth, right? Boom. You know, again, this is, and why is this so important? This is how you talk to yourself, men. Remember, the, the godly man in Psalm 1, right, is the man who talks to himself, when it says he meditates on the law day and night. What does that mean? He's muttering. In the Hebrew, it means mutter. It means he's muttering to himself all the time. He's talking to himself all the time. What do you say to yourself? Not that you're good, not that you're great. You're quoting Scripture. Well, this is what God's Word says. This is what God's Word says. This is what God's Word says. Men, you start doing that as the core of your life, and you watch and see how fighting sin just gets easier and easier in the sense of it's never going to go away, but you're going you're to have the tools. You're going to have the thought life. You're going to have the desire. That's what's missing. Am I, am I right or wrong? Is that not what's missing? Who thinks that way when you're fighting sin? This is what we do. Lord, help me, please. Lord, help me, please. And I can't, and I literally, I, I mean, this is, this is borderline charismatic, so forgive me, but it's like I can imagine God in heaven going, I have helped you. I've given you the gospel. I've given you the spirit, and I've given you my word. Just turn to the word. Just do what I've told you, right? I'm here. I'm with you. You're mine. Just get to it. Obey. It's so, so helpful. What other, what other verses would it be for his motivation what should, his, what should have been motivating him? Yes. 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 What about Ecclesiastes 12, 13, and 14? Imagine a man like this who's confronted. Never forget this, men. This will twist your thoughts to the point where you'll have to go back and think about it, and that's the whole point of saying it. It is the judgment of God that actually gives purpose to life. Take the judgment of God out of life, and life has no meaning. That That is Solomon's whole point when he gets to the end of Ecclesiastes, when he says, it's meaningless. It's all meaningless. It's all meaningless. Everything's meaningless. At the end, the whole world is meaningless. What is the one thing that brings meaning to life? It's the whole end of the book. The judgment of God. Fear the Lord and do his commandments. Why? Because he's going to bring everything into judgment. 
It is always the judgment of God that's coming that brings purpose to your life, meaning to your life. That's why the atheist has no purpose and meaning in life, uh, any at all, because the judgment of God is removed. They just do what they do, and they end up going this way and that way with no meaning, no purpose other than self. And so it is truly that. So we need to constantly be reminding ourselves that we are going to stand before the Lord. And this was at the heart of the Apostle Paul in his fight against sin. In 2 Corinthians 5, 9, he says what? We do everything, whether we're in the body or away from the body, we do everything to please him. That's verse 9. Now somebody look up and read verses 10 and 11. That should be our motivation, to please the Lord, to please him in all that we do. Now James, read. Read, started in verse 9, 5 9, 2 Corinthians 5 9. Watch this. Why? Keep going. Okay. What does that do then for the Apostle Paul's life? Read verse 11. It was the judgment of God, the future judgment of God, even as a believer, that actually motivates the Apostle Paul to be all that he was and to do all that he did. Again, when was the last time you were motivated by the judgment of God? When was the last time that you thought, I'm going to have to give an answer to the Lord? I'm going to have to stand before him for every word I use today. I'm going to have to give an account for every dollar I have, every, every, every minute I've used. Again, it changes your whole life. There's a really good book on the fear of the Lord and, and, um, that talks about how do, you, how do you live your life in the fear of the Lord. And one of the, one of the most helpful explanations in this book that I read many years ago was it was well there's a couple one is living every moment under the understanding that you are in the presence of God that he's watching so that's where with my kids or my son in particular I'll I'll just use this I go like this when I see him getting out of control or he's across the room and I'll just go like this he knows what I'm saying because we've worked this out he doesn't mean I see you that means nothing really in the end it means God's watching you God's watching you, son. And it's like, he goes like this, which is good, right? That's what he needs. He needs to come under control. But more than that, right? It's that you have to live in the pervasive, he said it this way, the pervasive presence of God. That he's everywhere. And then he goes on and he says, and you have to live with this, with this understanding that you are heading into that presence in judgment. Not as, a, not as an unbeliever if you're a believer, but you still have to give an account to the Lord. You're going to have to give this, in whether, like he said there in 2 Corinthians 5.10, whether good or bad. We've got to give an account for that. That's, that's what should be motivating us, that we are heading in a destiny to meet with the Lord, and we want to hear, well done, good and faithful servant, right? That's what motivated the, the stewards, the two stewards that doubled their talents. Why? Because they knew the master was coming back. Oh, that we would have that same perspective. Um, what would you use for um, what he should love most? What, what passage would you use for this? Yes. Matthew twenty two thirty seven to 40, right? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. So all that exercise did, men, and this is, this is about as manly as it gets in this class, okay, in this study. 
Um, what This is the word of God, but in Ephesians chapter 6, what is this called? And we lose sight of this all the time. What's this called? Sword. It's a sword, right? I use that phrase in our family a lot when one of our kids or, 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 or myself will forget your Bible or something, or you, and I'll, I'll, I'll just say no. I'll just say it's hard to fight a battle without a sword, right? Because that's what we're constantly doing. We're fighting all the time, right? Everywhere we go. And so we need to have our sword with us, right? But it's not good enough to have it strapped on your side. You got to know how to use it, man. And that's what this exercise and the other ones in the notes that we don't have time to get to, that's what it's about. It's learning how to use your sword. One, it's learning that it is a sword, that it's there for your protection, it's there for your edification, it's there for your defense, right? It's there for your advance, it's there for all of that. So you got to know that, but you also got to know how to use it. And that's all biblical counseling is. Can I, can I give you the heartbeat of biblical counseling? It's literally taking the sword of the Spirit and piercing into the heart, and then you're not done. What you do then is you equip that individual to then take the same sword of the Spirit and do it to themselves, and then you release them, and then tell them, go counsel others now. That's how you do it. That's all this is. It's like, man, come on, learn how to use the sword of the Spirit. Fight the flesh with the sword of the Spirit with and we don't have time, and the notes would be next, would be the gospel, the gospel, and maybe we'll uh, start there next time. Uh, number, number three, we'll, st- we'll start there. I'll, I'll move these over, both of these, because they're too good. I'll move these over for next week's notes, because I already know what I want to do in the final lesson with these two chapters, and I want to give you guys some really helpful steps as a culmination of all of this on how we how, how practically, based upon what we're learning about the Word and these exercises and what we're going to learn about the gospel in these next couple questions, and then I want to pull this all together and give you some really helpful steps based upon chapters 8 and 9, or, or 9 and 10. 10 really, why I doubled up there, because 10 really is just a very practical section about, about uh, in marriage and about parenting, and it was less specific to personally fighting so we won't deal with that. Uh, we'll focus mostly on chapter 9 and these questions. Go ahead, Lou. Sorry, I didn't hear you. Uh, I was just going to say, uh, what you're saying there, memorizing Scripture, putting it in your heart and your mind, and instead of praying your words, pray his words. Amen. Take them back to him. Amen. Just challenging people. Memorize Scripture. What do you memorize Scripture? You've got a verse of the week? Yeah. You put it in your heart. Yes. Yeah. Psalm 119. 109, 111, you know, 11, that's, I mean, that's it. I've hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against thee. I mean, that's, that's, that's the sword, but then learning how to use it, learning where to go, learning those passages and how, this is what Dr. Street said, you, a battle-wise counselor will know how to apply the biblical principles to the heart. That's what he's referencing there, and that should be all of us, man, all of us. Any questions? from what we went through? Anything helpful? Yes. Wasn't that helpful? Yeah. It's encouraging. It's encouraging that we're right there, like we're, we're right there. Yeah. I think it came out in January. He just did the interview. Yeah, no, it was good. That's why I listened to it and was like, oh, I want the guys to hear this. So praise the Lord. Thank you, brothers, for your faithfulness and 
for the opportunity to grow together through this class. Persevere, stay faithful. We'll keep fighting together. What a blessing. We are dismissed. Well, we couldn't leave you at the end without giving you a very clear gospel message. In Romans chapter 3, roundabout verse 23, simply says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Jesus Christ. Verse 25, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. The thing about it is God is holy and we are sinful. Uh, Verse 23 says all have sinned, fallen short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift. So the thing about it is when we realize that we're sinful and that God is holy, uh, then we are in the place where we understand that we by ourselves cannot do anything for our salvation. We have to completely and fully rely on God because there's no way that we can adopt ourselves into the family of God. And what God does is he sends his son in the form of flesh And he lives the perfect life, fulfills the law completely and has become our righteousness and has died for our sins in our place. The judgment and propitiates. uh, That's what uh, that big word in in verse 25 says. It's the propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. And that's the last part. We have to have that faith. We have to repent and believe and then walk by faith in him and believe and understand that we are his and that uh, he has provided a way for us to see that holy God. Thank you all for tuning in to the Truth Talks podcast. Once again, if you want more information on how to join our Bible study, uh, and this is open to all churches. This is not just open to the men of our church. This is open. We have a bunch of different uh, churches that have actually been showing up week by week, pastors as well that have been showing up because it's not about uh, the pastor or the church. It's really about the word of God. And that's what is being uh, is being presented and what's prevalent. But please email us at info at bellcroftbiblechurch.org. Once again, that's info at bellcroftbiblechurch.org. Thank you all for tuning in. And uh, also, you can follow us on Instagram. Uh, the Truth Talks podcast is on Instagram. You'll get updates about what's coming out and uh, where we're going. So please follow us on Instagram if you're on Instagram. Uh, some of us not are not, but it's okay. Uh, but we do have a, uh, a place, a landing spot where you can look for us. Thank you all for tuning in. Take care. Delighting in the word that we might walk in the truth. A ministry of Bellcroft Bible Church.